0: Welcome back to the podcast. In today's podcast, I'm going to be speaking with Thomas Bjorkman, who is an applied philosopher, a social entrepreneur. He is an author, too, of books such as The Nordic Secret and The Market Myth, and we're going to be talking about the the shift, the shift that we're going through in the world right now. In case you didn't notice, things have got a bit weird and feels, to me, certainly like Old systems are breaking down in some way, we're in some kind of liminal space. So that's what we'll talk about today. Thomas will talk about the immensity of the kind of shift that we're going through, why it's not, you know, akin to some of the lighter, if I could use that word, transitions that we've been through in humanity, but actually it's deep, it's a kind of phase shift. So we'll talk about. Uh, kind of some of the characteristics of this shift we'll talk about some of the lessons we might learn from what happened in Scandinavia 120 years ago we'll talk about uh, what we might do in these times you know how we might orient and what practices we might take on that will take us through these times we'll talk about myth and these collective imageries that we kind of just believe in that might be needing a kind of innovation and update. And I think this is important for coaches, because this is about societal shift. And, you know, we're not just coaching individuals within bubbles, you know, they, 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 they live and work within organizations within societies and communities. And so I I think it behooves us to kind of get a um, a, a sense of like what is going on on this larger scale and how might we how might knowing that help us orient the work that we're doing and in, inform the work that we're doing. So that's my wish in putting this podcast out. I think Thomas is a, has got a brilliant mind and an important message. And I also recommend checking out uh, some of his um, the organizations he's connected to uh, what is com and Perspectiva. He'll also mention some of the others in the podcast today. So check them out. Okay, that all being said, what else do I want to say? Well, other than I hope you enjoy this, uh, that if you're not on our mailing list and you want to sign up and stay in the loop about things, you can head to coachesrising.com and sign up there. You'll also see some of the other cool stuff we've got going on. So let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Thomas Bjorkman. So yeah, Thomas, it's great to be with you. It's taken a while for us to get here, but uh like nearly a year, I think. Yes, I'm glad we we're here now. Need
1: it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that we are now finally doing this. So thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: Yeah. I think uh we just touched into one of the reasons why I'd love to have your voice in our community because uh we spoke just briefly about um that many coaches I think have been focused on the individual. And uh, you know, helping people make individual change, and that's important. But I think it's insufficient in these times. And so there's something about the societal level and the change there needed that's so essential. And so uh, we're going to talk about that today, and many other things. Uh, maybe you could just—I think the first question I have is: um, what what do you see as being the shift that we're going through in these times? I think we're all we're all feeling it. We're all trying to make sense of what's going on. Um, And I'm turning to you now for the answer. How how are you making sense of this shift? Sure, sure.
1: It's difficult because I I think that uh, the shift that we are going through right now, and I think it's good that we are now more and more recognizing that this is really a a shift, that we are not just talking about a a change or that we need to adapt or that we need to to, um, evolve a bit, but that, that we are actually going through it a shift or a phase transition. Um, And I actually think that this shift that we are going through now is is very deep. Um, One could ask ourselves how deep this could be. And I usually say that it is, I think, at least as deep as the shift we went through as as humanity, at least in the West, when we went um, from the pre-modern world to the modern world when we went from a medieval, uh, religious, dogmatic worldview and and a feudal society to a scientific, rational worldview through the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. And we developed uh, democracy in in, in the wake of, of this shift in worldview. So I think that the shift we are going through right now is uh, is equally deep and uh, that we are just seeing the, the beginning of this shift. Mm. And, and it will put a lot of, of, of demands on us as individuals. And, and that's also why it's um, important with this connection to the personal inner development. Uh, just staying with the old uh, transition or shift a little bit, um, my colleague and friend Lena Anderson, the Danish philosopher and author, and I, we wrote a book a few years ago called The Nordic Secret, where we were telling the story about how the Scandinavian countries managed this previous shift uh, in a very uh, successful way. Uh, one could even argue, and we argue in the book, that the Scandinavian countries managed this transition more successfully and more peacefully than any other countries in in the world. Uh, Now, we we are the first one to point out in the book that we in the Scandinavian countries are losing whatever we had uh, a little bit, but we certainly were on to something back then. And this something is interesting. So if you allow me to to stay a little bit on on this, because I think it, it can frame and help us understand the transition that we are in right now because back then uh, 100 or 150 years ago uh, we had very visionary intellectuals and politicians in all the scandinavian countries who actually saw this previous transition coming they they knew that we had industrialization and urbanization coming and in such times of rapid social change, it's only natural for us humans to want to have some sort of external authority to hold on to. That could be a dogmatic religion or an authoritarian leader. Today, that would be an Erdogan or, or a Trump. Uh, but these politicians and intellectuals, they didn't want to be authoritarian leaders. They were firmly committed to build democracy, and they knew that the only way to build democracy is from bottom up. So they wanted to help create uh, the support for a lot of people in these uh, countries to actually take this very important developmental step in life that we can take as adults. And using Professor Robert Keegan's language, that is when we are going from a socialized mind into a more self-authoring mind. By that, becoming less dependent on external authority for our values, but also for our personal worth, and more becoming, in a much more deeper sense, authors of our own lives. So in these times of rapid transition, we need more people in society that are actually capable of being self-authoring and thereby being able to to guide themselves and their communities through these times of uncertainty. And and the way that they did this more than 100 years ago in Scandinavia is quite astonishing, because the best way I could describe this today would be that they actually created a lot of retreat centers for personal development. Mm -hmm. So And they created lots of them. So by the turn of the last century, year 1900, there were a hundred centers like this in Denmark alone, 75 in Norway and 150 in Sweden, where young adults in their twenties, later on with full state subsidy, could spend up to six months in retreat with the expressed aim of starting their journey towards uh, self-authorship. And when this program was at its height almost exactly 100 years ago, then 10% of each young generation in Scandinavia had the opportunity to participate in one of these six-month retreats. And of course, this created what we today would call some sort of critical mass in society. Isn't that an amazing story?
0: It is, yeah. I, I just yeah. Like
1: 250 I, years ago, see this connection around between interpersonal development and, and societal change and how interpersonal development could be an antidote towards authoritarianism and what is especially needed in times of rapid social change and uh, chaos.
0: I find that an incredible story, actually, and, and one that we're crying out for right now, you know, to hear of initiatives like this in in this time. And that brings up the question for me about, well, a couple of two questions in one, which is, um, you know, do you think that we need to replicate something like that in order to help us maybe create a new tipping point or would it you know look some would it look differently we have things like the internet now and um, a, a global society and and then coupled in with that question is this sense of um, this powerful shift from um, socialized mind to self-authored and you know now you hear of people speaking about the need for us to evolve from self-authored to self-transforming what Keegan calls self-transforming mind in order to be able to deal with the complexity of the world, and so, mm. um, do you think that's also true? And um, so, those are my two questions. Yes,
1: yes, yeah. oh, yes ab- absolutely. So, so yes, I, I think we we can learn a lot from what was going on in 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 Scandinavia back then, and um, if you read the book The Nord- Nordic Secret, you will also uh, read there how. This was not just uh, in Scandinavia, but this actually traveled to the US and had implications for the civil rights movement in the in the US and other interesting things. But I don't think we should see what we did in Scandinavia a hundred years ago as, as a blueprint for what we should do today. As you rightly point out, today we are in a digitized world and we are in a global world. Um, I personally, do not think that there is any better way to, to facilitate and support personal development than doing it face to face in small groups, uh, preferably close to nature. And that was exactly what was what was happening at these retreat centers that were called folk high schools. And they were often in nature and relatively small, small groups. Uh, and that is what we are also doing. I, my foundation in Stockholm, the the Credit Foundation, the Oak Island Foundation. We have our own retreat center out in the nature, in the Stockholm Archipelago, where we do personal development and youth camps and invitational conferences and other things. So, I'm, I'm a big believer in the in real life, authentic meetings out in nature. But having said that, it's not easy to scale, and to believe that we all over the world should all of a sudden start investing in centers like this to be able to support 10% of the global population. I think that would be, be wonderful, but, but not perhaps realistic. So I more see what Leanne and I describe in our book as uh, a case study, showing that this talk about the importance of personal development, just, not just for the individual, but also in this societal shift, that this is not just some fancy new age idea out of California or something, but it is actually a a concept that has been tried and tested on large scale in three different countries that implemented this in a little bit different way more than a hundred years ago, and we can still see the positive effects. So for me, it's more a a case study, an important case study than, uh, than a blueprint. I do think that we can use digital support for a lot of this, um, my foundation is, since a few years back, uh, running a project together with another foundation in Stockholm called the Nordsjön Foundation uh, around developing an open source, nonprofit digital platform for personal growth and development. It's called 29K. That's 29,000. That's the number of days you hopefully will have in your life if you live uh, a long life. And the idea is to make them all matter. So how to help a lot of people get the most out of their, their lives. And what we have shown there is that very much thanks to video conferencing, because the core component in this, uh, in this platform is a, a video conferencing tool where we create small groups of four to six people who meet in self-facilitated but guided uh, or structured conversations around personal development issues. And that is actually working. And, and if, if you can do this digitally and through self-facilitating uh, groups, uh, then, of course, you can scale this in a completely different way rather than if you're talking about uh, uh, doing this in, in real life.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think I, th- I still think it's incredible because, you know, knowing the amount of work it takes for people to to develop, that actually they were able to go away in nature for six months like that and immerse themselves is so powerful. And I guess that the question I have is, and of you know, course, this sorry sorry for interrupting yeah, you. But yeah. then, then
1: of, of course, back then. We needed all labor and, and people spent six years in, in school only and so on. I mean, today. We have a surplus of time and especially for those who just left university or or something so today i would say society can in a completely different way actually afford for young people to actually go away for six months and do this and and to grow and 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 to become adults in in a a deeper sense but for some reason we feel today that we can't afford what they could afford 100 years ago
0: yeah Totally. That yeah. That makes. I was just thinking that before. Um, And the the question uh, that comes up for me is the kind of change that we're going through that you mentioned before. Like this is you know it's not just a you know a transition on a more superficial level. This is actually a a kind of phase shift or something. And Hmm. um, I just wondered if you could. um, I don't know. In some ways, it's like we don't know what that is. Yeah. Like it's still. You said we're in the early phases, but. Could you say more about what you perceive the kind of shift we're making is and mm, where we yeah. might end up? Yeah. Yeah. So so the first thing
1: I should say then is is that I believe that many people who are thinking about this societal uh, shift has come to the conclusion that any deeper shift in in a complex system like our global cultural system is is a complex system. Any deeper shifts in such complex system is usually emergent. And what do we mean by saying that it is emergent? It, it actually means that, that it will be turbulent and what will come out on the other side, it is not possible to, to say. Not just because we lack knowledge, but because the process is actually fundamentally non-deterministic some people are talking about the butterfly effect small things can have a huge impact and if you add on top of that the very rapid technological development that we are going through right now for for good and for bad um i believe that that uh, technology like uh, blockchain technology and and perhaps also artificial intelligence will, will within five or ten years, provide tools that will make it possible to reinvent institutions like the market or democracy in much, much more intelligent but also participatory uh, ways. I mean, the way we structured democracy 200 years ago was, was essentially based on the technology of the horse you had to select a local representative who then took the horse and carriage and and traveled two days to get to the capital and then represented you so to today you you could reinvent democracy in in many different ways and the same with the market which essentially is such a powerful uh, and efficient instrument because it takes all human values, a multidimensional value space, and projects that down to one single dimension of the price. And of course, that is a super efficient way of doing things, just taking one thing into consideration, and that is the price or the cost. But then, of course, at the same way, you lose so much information in this projection, and that turns up like uh, externalities and environmental degradation and and other things. So if we with blockchain technology could keep more of that information in our exchange system, we could probably have an exchange system that could perhaps be equally efficient as the market, but would take many more of our human values, both individual values, but also collective values into account but this is all science fiction so i'm mean, i'm just saying that it's yeah. very difficult to in this emergent and space and in this rapid technology to to see where the world will be in 20 or 30 years especially since when i'm talking to to people in in uh, silicon valley about the technological development many of them say that the the technology that will have the biggest impact on human society in already 20 years is probably not artificial intelligence or blockchain or any of the other technologies that we know today. The technology that will have the most impact on the human society in 20 years is probably not yet invented. <laughs> so, so, so in such an environment, it is difficult. And, and that's also why we see, of course, in in, in politics, that it is not that easy to have a positive uh, uh, vision around the future. I mean, dystopia is much, much more simple. And it was easier 100 or even a f- 50 years ago to, for politicians and, and for thinkers to actually present some sort of preferred utopia. This is where we want to want to go. That's not possible credibly in the same way today. But then I, I say that then it's important for us not to resign and say, well, then we don't know what is going to happen. So then let's just see what democracy and the market, where democracy and the market takes us. So we will just be spectators on this uh, development. That, that is equally wrong. So when we can't focus perhaps on the positive outcome in this transition, then our focus will have to be on the process. So what is the good process for going forward? And then certainly I think that after the last couple of years now, more and more of us start to realize that just relying on the market in its present implementation, and democracy again in its present implementation, will not take us to where we want to be in 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 twenty years. So we we, mm. we need to come up with something uh, radical right. here. Radical.
0: I I guess I wonder. Yeah, go ahead. You want to?
1: No, I just wanted to, to say that. So, and so then, how could we how could we help ourselves to understand where we are in this? Trend in this transition. And uh, I, I think it's useful to uh, look towards science in, in different types of knowledge systems that we usually do not uh, need to consult. And I'm thinking about, for example, the recent surge in, in interest in deep history the Yuval Harari genre of of work, where we are not just looking at the last hundreds of couple of years, couple of hundred years or thousands of years, but going back tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and even millions of years to see these very, very long uh, trajectories. How humans started to create society. What is a society? What is this unique human ability to create symbolic language and start to talk about abstract aspects like justice, you can't find justice out in nature. That's something that we human have come up with as a concept. And then we implement this in legal systems and in societies and in a symbolic universe. And then we start to believe in these symbolic universes. So understanding that process and how we have had these deep societal transitions many times in history, going back to the axial age uh, 3,000 years ago when many of the uh, monotheistic religions were first formed when we went from small hunter-gathering tribes to be able, through these new social constructs, these new collective imaginaries, to be able to build large cities and civilizations. And how this world has transformed many times, and then perhaps the last time during the Enlightenment. And what does it mean to go through such a shift? And previously throughout history, we have done this more or less not knowing what was happening. But back then, even if large civilizations have collapsed, and we should remember that most civilizations, if not all historical civilizations, has collapsed. So even when the Roman Empire collapsed, that did not affect the whole of the globe. That that affected a large part of Europe, but not more. And other parts were still able to uh, to thrive and and to um, benefit even from from that collapse. Whereas today we are in the unique situation that we have one civil like one global civilization, and that our human powers are such that. If that civilization collapses, that might be potentially the end of of humanity. So I would say that we have to give up this sort of trial and error and just hope for the best, but really try to understand what does a societal or civilization transition or transformation? What does that entail? And how can we best be in service of such a transition? So that we can learn from deep history But then we have deep psychology. And uh, say 20 years ago, there wasn't many people who were interested in, for example, Jungian psychology. But, but, But now we are starting to look a bit deeper into our minds and understanding that in these transitions where everything is up for negotiation, are there any deep psychological constants like human archetypes that play an important role in these transitions. And uh, yeah, so interest is in deep history, deep psychology, but also in deep sociology. Usually sociologists are more interested in measuring the surface phenomena of society. But as I mentioned before, looking deep, deep into the unconscious part of our society, like the collective imaginaries, and realizing that things like that we totally take for granted, like nation states, marriages, markets, and even money. But that is just human inventions. It's part of our collective imaginary, our collective belief. And if we stop believing in nation states, they are gone. If we stop believing in money, it's worthless. So what what of those things can we actually let go of? And what new, similar, deep, I wouldn't say believes, but we we need these myths and we need the collective imaginary. So we can't think that we will just get rid of these things and live without them. We need to reinvent these deeper layers of of society as well. And of course, this is exciting times.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's so much in what you said. It's like, it it, it speaks to me of like this chrysalis type feeling, it's liminal space um, that I've been feeling where, uh, you know, it's a bit like, uh, what is, what is true anymore? What can I rely on? Mm. Uh, you know, we actually, we mentioned, um, self-transforming mind, uh, Keegan's self-transforming mind. And as you mm-hmm. mentioned this deep history and you mm-hmm. name all these epochs, it's like that actually there's something about that inquiry for me that starts to, um, have that, that effect of like mm. dislodging me from my attachments to my 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 personal imagery mm. and my collective, I think our collective in, imagery mm. too. I've been listening to this podcast, Fall of Civilizations, You know, where it, where it charts the rise and fall of all these civilizations. Mm. And it's incredible to do that because mm. um, it really expands your sense of context or mm. um, security around... Um, you know the habituated sense of what the world is and so um, it feels like we're in this liminal space um, but that there is a real potential as you name with this I love that you bring up this idea of collective imagery and how we can actually begin to reimagine do you think that's what's happening right now actually that you know as systems collapse we're doing that yeah. yeah
1: Not, I don't think we're doing it really yet, but if we are aware of the fact that we are so dependent on these collective imaginaries or, or subconscious parts of our, our society, that will, of course, when, when the old systems are starting to break down, then we understand that we need to invent something, something new. And I might just take one example here to, to, to make this a little bit more concrete and, and not sound so abstract, because these things are, of course, they have to be abstract because we are talking about such huge time spans and so deep transformation that it becomes very abstract. But just to give you a, an, an idea around uh, money as a, as a human invention or a part of the collective imaginary. And to compare that with air or or oxygen, because it's it's not just that we we humans need to realize that say ninety percent of of our human world is actually just human inven- invention and could be otherwise. That, then we have this at least ten percent that, that is nature, and and those that are constructionists they they tend to think that everything is. Uh, just a social construct, but then you go equally wrong as, as if you think that everything is just natural. So as a human living in uh, society today, as an individual, it almost to me feels like money and air are equally important for my survival. To function in my society today and to survive, I need to have access to, to air, to breathe oxygen, and I need to have money so I can buy shelter and and food. But of course, these two things are very different in the way that even if the whole of humanity were to come together and decide that we don't want to be dependent on oxygen any longer, we couldn't do anything about that. Whereas if we came together all of humanity or or just a majority in a nation state and said that we don't want to use money any longer for uh, exchange and allocating our, our goods and services. We would want to have another system. Then of course, money could be gone tomorrow. But it's important to, to emphasize that that agency that we have over money, over our collective imaginary, we ha- is only a collective agency. So collectively, we could decide that we want to get rid of money. As individual, money and oxygen still meets me as almost objective reality. And that's also why when you talk about what is true and what is not true, it's a different thing to talk about truth when we speak about oxygen or truth when we speak about money, because the truth about money is contingent upon us all believing in that reality mm. in a way that our dependency on oxygen is not. But then again, if I as an individual have this realization that money is just a fantasy, a collective fantasy, that doesn't help me when I'm at the supermarket and I'm, I'm checking out and the cashier tells me that uh, I, need, I need to pay uh, 150 pounds. If I tell the cashier, well, money is just a collective fantasy. So you can forget about that, they will call the police on me. <laughs> because society is reinforcing this collective belief in, in ways as well. And, and that is why we need sort of to have collective agency, to exercise collective well, agency to, to to change this. But the, but the transition that we are in right now is at the level of Reimagining and reinventing things like nation states and money and some of these fundamental aspects that we more or less today take for granted and, and natural. I would just say one more thing. Yeah, here, yeah. that one thing that is a bit sad here is that sometimes I think that we are completely mixing these two realities up in the way that. Sometimes I get the impression that we believe that the planetary boundaries are up for negotiation, whereas the market forces, we just need to obey. Whereas, of course, it's the opposite. We can't do anything about the planetary boundaries. We need to adapt to them as humanity, whereas the market forces, for example, we could easily change the way. They work. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's know if that um, was
1: clarifying, or no, no. Or, no it does more
0: confusing. Well, um, a lot to take in for the listeners. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think that's why I wanted you on the podcast because uh, I, I think we've often focused a lot on working with the individual in the coaching field, and um, now we have things like systemic coaching, and uh, but it. But as you give this example of like the individual and the collective, I think, um, yeah, you know, a lot of, a lot of people working with client, for example, working with a coaching client, they go off and then they're in the collective of their company or the collective of society. Mm-hmm. And they might be seeing things differently, but then they're meeting up against the force of society that still oh. holds certain beliefs. And so, um, you mm-hmm. know, it, it, in a way it's like that uh, question. Some of, like, of beliefs, yeah, Some of these beliefs, some of these beliefs, like money
1: uh, are sanctioned by law. So, so, to change those things, you actually need a political decision where a majority made a decision. But many other things of, of this collective imaginary is just, as you, you mentioned, are just beliefs that we hold. It, it could be beliefs of, that, that we are these isolated utility-maximizing individuals that the Enlightenment right. philosophers and today the neoclassical economists would want us to believe that, that we are. That, that is a belief that is permeating society completely. But that is not ins- uh, inscribed in any law or anything. That is just a matter of creating a critical mass who believes in something new, and then you will see a shift in the collective uh, uh, imaginary. Yeah. So to be I, I, aware of happening. these processes yeah. and to to be in service of those processes and see where we as individuals can support these transitions in our collective belief, uh, yeah. is very important.
0: Yeah, I mean, I see that happening in the coaching field. This, um, you know, this sense of the, you know, the high, the golden standard of the individual, you know, the leader that could. Uh, individually go out and, and, and be the one that leads and, to glory and, uh, but actually you know, through many different fields such as neuroscience, interpersonal neurobiology all, all kinds that starting to break that idea down that, yeah, that yeah. the individual just doesn't exist in that way. I think we've, we've got a sense of that with the pandemic on a collective level as well and I guess it, it yeah, brings that, up that, the that question does It
1: really make sense for us all to just try to right. maximize our own health if, if I have got the best uh, health insurance and everything, that won't help me in a pandemic. If my, if my garbage collector or pizza delivery guy can't take a day off when, when he is sick, he will bring the virus to me. So right. my health is actually dependent on everyone having access to decent health service, for example. We can hope that that is something that we all realize in, in the pan- pandemic.
0: Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think that's a painful process for me, at least in some ways, to um, begin to look at where am I playing that game of, of like, what can I accumulate and um, hold on to in order to maintain my own sense of well-being and safety? You know, in some ways, it's a very natural human instinct, but I think perhaps collectively we might be in, being invited to um, relax <laughs> Relaxed yeah. around that into or, or, or something or that brings to, more,
1: yeah, or to be able to hold those two perspectives at the same time, because historically we've been very much either, either or in our thinking. It has been uh, either we are in a communist collectivist world or we are in a super capitalist neoliberal world. But holding the fact that yes, we as humans we have these instinct and and the individual needs and and we need to make sure that we can satisfy them in a reasonable way but then at the same time we are one of the most social animals on on this planet and we have this ability to invent our social world so as whereas all other animals live just in a natural world we live in this social world that we have created so we are like the fishes Fish swimming in the water, not being aware of the water. And once we become aware of the water, we realize that we are actually the creators of our own water. So mm-hmm. why am I swimming in a poisonous water? That that
0: is sort of the the realization.
1: Yeah. The fish can't do anything about that, but we can once we right. realize that.
0: Because well, that that actually, the question I had was, uh, you said that this is a process and that it's emergent. I, I wonder. Um, how, how we're being called to be in that process, if you have any, you know, any ideas about yeah, who we're being called to be in these times, really.
1: I, I, I think, again, we, we, we can perhaps learn a bit from previous civilizational transformations and, and realize that, that we all have a role to play in these transitions um and that part of our i don't know if i should use the word calling that's a bit too strong but i can't find a a bit softer english word that part of our calling today is is to find our role in this transition and that can be a very small and practical role, and it could be a bigger and more grandiose role. But I think we all have a role to play in this transition, and that we are playing a role in this transition, whether we are aware of it or not. And there the personal development aspect comes in that I believe that the more of us that actually become aware of the fact that, yes, we are playing this role in this historical tran- transition the better it is. And then we, we realized that we in a transition like this, we might need inner uh, capacities and skills that might not be as urgently needed in a more stable society. But again, going back to, to Robert Keegan's model there of, of, of personal development in a very stable society, it might even be beneficial for the society if most of us are in a socialized mind, just accepting the, uh, the, the norms and the reality of society and, and being happy and carving out an, an existence within that s- certainty. That might even be uh, not as um, anxiety-inducing as being, living in a, in a more rapidly developing society. Mm. But when we are living in a rapidly developing society or even a transitional society, then, of course, if we were all just in a socialized mind replicating society, that wouldn't work because we need a societal shift. Even if we were just saying that we need an adoption to the the developing technology, you need to have a critical amount of, of people in that society that can take a more detached, to have a more detached relationship to to the present culture and be actively contributing in this uh, transition. And in order for you to be able to do that, you need to somehow, as you can't take the guidance for for your actions and values from the outside, you need to have developed a, a good relationship to your own inner compass. And, and that's what yeah. we're talking about, this self-authoring. And then you mentioned this very rare... Well, first, I, I could perhaps say that, uh, as I know that you and your network are, are using the, the, the model and the language of, on, uh, of Robert Keegan. For, for those who are new to this, we could just mention that uh, some estimates would say that perhaps in today's Western world, If we are lucky, perhaps half of us all might at some point in life, for many much later in life, take this step of going from the socialized mind to a a more self-authoring mind. And that this transition is often triggered by some sort of personal... uh, uh, challenging event it could it could be the death of your parents it could be losing your job or 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 a divorce or 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 something like that and then you all of a sudden you might realize that even if you are a very successful lawyer you're partnering one of the big law firms in in town but you realize that the life that you've been living is not your own life it's your father's Mm. life your father wanted to become this lawyer, but he didn't have the opportunity to study. And he put you through law school, and now you're living your father's life. You're not living your own life. You might not realize that until you are 55 and have your first heart attack or, or some, something something like that. So, of course, then having a society like we did in, in Scandinavia 100 years ago, who tried to put you in in that process already in your 20s or say that you at least in the beginning of your 30s go through the process of trying to find your own life instead of living somebody else's life whether it's your parents life or if it's your idol's life or is it just society's uh, life would of course be a benefit uh, but again um, at least 50 percent of us all in in the west we, we we never wake up from from the from the socialized mind but then this self-authoring mind is, is much more rare. We are talking about just a few percentage and self-transforming
0: usually,
1: you mean or... yeah, yeah so, sorry, yep. yes sorry yes yeah. uh, self-transforming mind, and it is usually associated with uh, wisdom and, and of uh, mm, a, a, a bit also comes with with age. And um, um, if you need many people with a self-transfor self-authoring mind to be able to be co-creators in a in a rapidly developing society, you also need a few people who can really take the biggest systemic perspective and also hold the biggest timeframes, and also hold the contradictions in this developmental process. And and in in indigenous populations, this was usually the the role of the elders. But today, we have lost that function in Mm. society. So uh, today, society is basically run by quite... Ego driven self authoring people. And the few self transforming or wiser people that we have are often marginalized within our structures, whether they are we're talking in a corporation or in a in a political party. So I think it's we are standing at the point where we need to both Re re-evaluate our ability to just harness the wisdom that is already existing in society with a few self-transforming individuals that we have, and then also possibly help to support and facilitate that development in more people. Mm. And just knowing the fact that we actually can develop these uh, higher stages of of consciousness is so important, both for us as individuals to know that our development does not end when we are our cognitive and emotional development doesn't end when we are 20 or something, uh, but that this is a lifelong process and that you are not done even if you are 55 or 65 or 75, that this is an ongoing uh, development. If we all know that, then uh, we can be more active in our own uh, participation in our individual development. But also if we were to know about this as a society, we could as a society create, u- using Robert Keegan's language, he he is sometimes talking about that we need deliberately developmental organizations, organizations that support the personal development of all its employees, I would say that we today need deliberative developmental societies that knows about this uh, uh, lifelong Mm -hmm. developmental potential and make that really a core of uh, the the politics to to support that development and to harness the potential that is released through that development.
0: You said a couple of things here. I'd love to, I've got a couple of ideas um, inspired by what you said. I'd love to throw to you and see what you make of it. Um, I I like that you talk about we find our own place, you know, what is ours to give. And that could be one of the ways we uh, find our way through these times in in terms of being in the process. Because I've certainly felt the developmental dojo of our times, you know, that, and at least in uh, myself and amongst some of the people I know, um, that it's brought out this deeper sense of calling or, or service, like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, things are going a bit weird and a bit crazy. And, and and it and it evokes inside of me this sense of what's mine to give in these times. And so yeah. um, that's got me wondering about, do we have enough time? You know you talked about the small percentage of people that move to self- transforming. And um, even you know that only maybe fifty percent of people go to self-authoring, and and so I wonder about whether we've got enough time, and that there might be other areas that we can leverage. For example, this sense of calling—you know—that mm. uh, if people can actually begin to tune into a sense of calling, and even the question like, not what do I want with my life, but what what does life want with me. Mm. That that might actually be um, a kind of uh, bigger catalyst to people uh, being a contribution in these times mm-hmm. than than yeah. um, than if we just work through the pure conceptual rational developmental lineage, you know. So I guess I hope this but, is making which, sense. I'm trying to yeah, construct yeah, my point. Which, the imagery of course, point is if, really if important. We, yeah,
1: even if yeah. we say that the, we we use this word rational development. Uh, It's important, of course, to stress that this lifelong developmental journey uh, is both, at least both uh, cognitive and emotional. And and that these times are calling for us all to be able to hold both cognitive and emotional and relational and many other complexities at, at the same time that is why personal development is such a difficult thing to, to, to do, you know, it's, it's right. really operating on, on many, many different uh, levels and, and layers.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, but then somehow, um, it, uh, maybe there's this sense of like, there are other types of knowing that maybe we um, lost connection with, for example, mm-hmm. through the enlightenment era that, yes, of um, course. you know, So, for example, like, and I think you talk about the word soul, but like even the word soul, it doesn't appear in any of like developmental um, literature. And I think you know, I get why, yeah, because it's it's kind of hard to measure. His work is very um, you know uh, like diligent, and uh, it's been measured uh, scientifically, and that's a good thing. Yes, but. Then something about the, the this word soul that's been left out, and and I wonder if you yeah, th- recaptured that word. Th-
1: yeah, yeah, and I think it is. I think it is uh, is coming back. And and uh, uh, the small research institute in, in London that uh, Jonathan Rowson and I started a couple of years ago called Perspectiva. We actually have as our tagline the three words systems, souls, and society. So we we are definitely trying to recapture the word soul in in uh, not necessarily a, a, a religious uh, context, but but certainly in some sort of spiritual uh, context. So I think yeah. Yeah, I think we should we should dare to start using that word a- again, if for nothing else as as just. Uh, a term for for the totality of our inner uh, worlds which are of course much much deeper and richer than just our conscious mind or even our unconscious mind our uh, in inner world is connected as we all know with, with neurosystems in the heart with, with the guts of our of our in tests, but also all the way down to, to the chemical substance, signal substance in, in, our, in our blood. And that's just the individual side. Then we know that from mirror neurons, uh, we, we are connected, these systems, with with each other. So you could say that we are all connected souls, connected to each other, but also connected to our culture and to our environment and to to nature and to the and to, and to the universe, so uh, yeah, no, I'm 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 totally uh, with you there, but also it's important not to um, use a language that is um, that some people find difficult to relate to, and we are still very much in this scientific paradigm. So I think. Uh, uh, Robert Keegan did the right thing when he was writing in the 80s and in the in the 90s, where he wrote his most important books to stay completely within a, a scientific paradigm and do empirical measures of, of, of these things that helps these things get accepted. And it's amazing to see how this has become very accepted, a sort of I- inner development or even consciousness development. But mainly, I would say, so far... Uh, in the West from from the business community. I mean, we have have leadership development consultants that has helped top management in in large corporations to be on this in a maturation journey for decades. And, And now this is more and more corporations are starting to wake up to the fact that this is something now in a complex world that is not just necessary for corporations to support the top management in their development, but actually everyone in uh, rapidly developing, say, technological innovative organization needs to be supported in the inner development so that we can all in the organization take a great responsibility for the the totality. You cannot uh, any longer run a uh, tech development organization, not even a fairly large organization like, say, Spotify in Stockholm, just by looking at narrow, uh, small, broken-down tasks. More and more of us need to be able to take a a more self-management role and take a larger responsibility for the totality. And and that entails uh, personal development. And that's why, again, some people are talking about the need for deliberately developmental uh, companies, organizations. Uh, and i would say deliberately developmental societies that's where we that's where we need to go
0: yeah now there were some great experiments going on i know of one huge global company that's combined developmental work with agile being agile and you know the whole company is going through a huge transition in that way with many learnings coming from it so um, but
1: i didn't really answer your question about what what can we do on yeah. on in, in the short term, and, and you are very yeah. right in pointing out that uh, what we are talking about here might even be intergenerational work. It might be work that takes long, long time, and we don't have that much time. I mean, we, we can clearly see that not only our environment is breaking down, but also our democratic systems in many countries are starting to, to break down. So what can we do now and before answering that, I just want to quote um, uh, my friend, the, the African uh, philosopher Bayou uh, Akumulafa. Uh, and he has got his, this wonderful quote, and he, he, he usually says like this, my ancestors tell me we are an, an emergency. We have to slow down. And I think that is very wise, because our Western (laughs) default reaction when we are facing a crisis is to go straight to action. So what can we do now? But that might be part of the problem, the way we are reacting. So the part of the answer might might be that, no, we we have to slow down. We have Mm. to slow down. It has to take the time it takes, and so on. So that would be one way of answering uh, the question. The other way of answering the question is saying, yeah, working on personal development takes a long time. Going back to the projects we had in Scandinavia more than 100 years ago, it takes generations, I mean, at least 20 years, 30 years or something like that to really lift the consciousness level of 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 a nation. And now we need to lift the consciousness level of the globe. So yes, we should work on that project. But then I also think that uh, that we already today have a lot of untapped consciousness in society. It's just that our systems are not uh, putting a premium on these more wiser way of of seeing the world. Um, We even as uh, citizens, we demand from our politicians clear answers is it yes or is it no? And what is the action you are going to take now? And any politician that is trying to hold the complexity and see both sides of the paradox would quite quickly be voted out of, of uh, out of office. So I think if we could promote a, a cultural shift and a shift in worldview, where we would start realizing that the old worldview and the old map that we have been using to navigate the world during the last 200 years from the enlightenment. that yes, that has been very beneficial to humanity in many ways. And we shouldn't just throw out the old map like that because that map has given us modern medicine. It's given us uh, democracy. It's given us human rights. We, we wouldn't want to not have those Things and we hope to continue and develop along those lines. But certainly that old worldview needs at least to be strongly complemented with new ways of seeing the world, such as we already mentioned. Yes, we are these individuals and we shouldn't forget that we are individuals and we should cherish the fact that we are individual and that we can individuate in Jung's language and that we could become authors of our own lives become self-authoring. We don't want to go back to the undifferentiated collective of the Middle Ages. But we are also part of this greater collective, and we are interconnected. And how can we hold these two perspectives at the same time? Perhaps shifting from the view of the world, seeing the world more of of things and nouns, and starting to see the world more in terms of processes going into some sort of process philosophy, and see how these processes are interconnected and, and, and nested in, e, in each other. To go from the old worldview of seeing our mind as a rational machine that is fully developed when we are 20, to realize that our mind is a complex organic system and the constant development through our life, and that that development can actually be supported. Perhaps another shift would be to realize that we can't just take the human world and accept it as it is, as if it was given to us by God or by nature, but realizing that we are actually constantly creating and recreating this social world whether we are aware of it or not and again start to not immediately throw out nation states and money but becoming aware of the water that we are swimming in and realizing that we have collective agency over concepts like this and then finally if i should mention one more worldview shift might be to to uh, stop just focusing on 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 the material growth and focus on on GDP and, and focusing on the material aspects of life, they are of course your highest priority. If you are you are starving and without shelter, but for for most people in the in the Western world, I might even say most people in the world today, luckily, we, we have come to a, a point where. We could leave this focus on the on, on the material aspects of life and start looking into aspects like purpose and uh, meaning and investigate that part. And that would be the meaningful part of, of growth in the future, not the growth of uh, GDP, but the growth of meaning and purpose in our lives.
0: But that idea just lights me up. <laughs> 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 what a world... That could yeah. be if we if yeah. we did that, yeah.
1: yeah. And 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 this, I mean, changing our worldview like this is not done overnight, but it doesn't need to take uh, take twenty years. I mean, we we've seen before in the, in our fairly recent history how how we in the in the world in different parts of the world have changed views of certain things quite uh, quite quickly. So a concerted effort to expand our worldview to include these other perspectives as well, could could be a project that could take 10 years or something like that. And again, it's not a question of reaching everyone, but in these self-organizing complex systems like our civilization, probably if 5%, 10%, 15%, of us all started to see the world and started to relate to ourselves to each other relate to society and relate to the planet in new ways that could be this tipping point that gets the whole system to tip over into a a, a new way of operating
0: mm, yeah well I, i'm aware of the time and um, i want to make sure uh yeah that we that we give you enough time to transition Um, I just want to express my gratitude, Thomas, um, for your mind and your ability to, you know, weave this picture, this, um, you know, this complex set of ideas together for us today. And actually, you know, I, I, the more I look at the work you're doing, just to say, just to say thanks for what you're up to in the world, because, um, you know, I really see you, um, being a player, you know, Mm. creating these initiatives that are, that are touching people's lives. So I'm I'm grateful you're doing that
1: yeah and we are um, we are many that do that so if if some of your listeners are are interested in exploring these ideas yeah. i would i would recommend uh, one of the initiatives in our ecosystem w- which is a, a media platform run out of berlin called emerge and the url is whatisemerging.com the, there you can all find a lot of thinkers and doers and projects in in this area that can serve us as food for thought or or inspiration to to us all yeah
0: yeah thanks and i also recommend perspectiva as a an organization for people to check out there's some great writing yeah. there absolutely. as well. absolutely
1: that's that's a bit more abstract and 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 and, uh, and academic but uh, absolutely we are out with five new books this spring and one particular that uh, uh, I like very much which is, which is about uh, meta-modernity. So yeah. I, I believe that we come from the pre-modern world, into the modern world. we have the postmodern critique of the modern world, which is very important and that we need to take on, but we can't build a new society just with post-modern critique. The so after the postmodern, of, yeah. after the postmodern, we need to move on to the metamodern.
0: And to explore what that what that could mean great well that's maybe the topic for our next podcast um, well then thomas i hope our paths cross again soon and i wish you well uh, the rest of your yeah. day
1: yeah and, and thank you for the, for this conversation and, and thank you for your work with your podcast and everything else that you are
0: doing here we are we're at the end of the podcast just a, a heads up again if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about